Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you for listening. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Hi, everybody. Good morning and happy new year. It's been nearly three years since our first virtual class. Um, and I look forward to many more. So welcome this morning to the 2023 Virtual HOA Condo Academy number one. Um, and we're gonna be talking today about short-term rentals, rentals, and transfer and disclosure fees. We have really great attendance and I'm so happy to have you here today. So welcome to our first class of 2023, our Virtual HOA Condo Academy in partnership with the cities of Avondale, Chandler, Glendale, Goodyear, Mesa, Peoria, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Surprise, and Tempe. We're so happy to have you here with us here today. It looks like I'm just kind of watching to see how many people are joining us. Um, and it looks like we're getting more and more as each minute goes on. Just as a matter of introduction, for those of you who I haven't met before, uh, my name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the managing partner and senior attorney of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. Enjoyed representing HOAs and condominiums for the past 26 years. Um, I can't believe it's been that long. It doesn't seem that long. Um, it just goes by very, very fast, as I'm sure many of you who have had long careers understand. My firm currently represents over a thousand planned communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. And I also currently serve on my HOA board and have for many years. We're doing something a little different today for our viewers that are joining us on Facebook Live. If you'd like to receive a copy of today's handouts or cheat sheets, please email us at info at um, Of course, anybody who's joining us on Zoom also can do that. So those of you who may be familiar with our cheat sheets that we have for our firm, um, we have a number of over 60 cheat sheets on different topics. You know, if you would like to receive them directly by email, you can just go ahead and email us at info at mulcahylawfirm.com for all the cheat sheets that we've used today. So you can have them as a quick reference. Before we dive into the meat of the seminar today, um, we're going to be talking again, like I said, about short-term rentals and transfer fees and disclosure fees. I'd like to get us to start out by getting a feel for who is in the audience today so I can tailor the information to best serve all of you. So we're going to have two polls that we launch at the same time. And I ask that you please participate so that I can best tailor this class to board members, homeowners, managers. So the first question we have um, first is, which city do you reside in, um, in Arizona? And we have a number of different choices. Um, and then the second question is, um, let us know your current role. Are you a board member, a community manager, an interested homeowner, or other? If you're joining us on Facebook Live today, great, welcome. We're going to ask you, since we can't do the poll directly on your screen on Facebook Live, I just ask that you indicate in the uh, comment section which city you live in and what your current role is in the association. So are you a board member, homeowner, interested homeowner, community manager, or other? Um, looks like we have our poll results in here. Let's see, and I'm just going to read them off for you. Um, it looks like we have 7% here joining us today from Avondale, 11% from Glendale, 18% from Mesa, 11% from Peoria, 21% from Phoenix, and 25% from Scottsdale, 
4% from Surprise and 4% from Tempe. So wonderful. We have over 58 people uh, with us on Zoom Live right now, and a number also are joining us on Facebook Live too. So that's awesome. Our second question is, our, what is your current role in the association? So 68% of you are board members, 11% are managers, 14% are interested homeowners. Wonderful. Welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for participating. It really does help us tailor this class. Um, it looks like we're board member heavy today. Um, so we'll make sure that we tailor the class to everybody, but make sure that we focus on important issues pertaining to boards today too. Okay, so we're going to be talking today about the hottest topics right now in Arizona. The first topic we're going to talk about is short-term rentals and how to handle short-term rentals and just rental properties in general effectively. Um, we're also going to talk about the differences between disclosure fees and transfer fees. And that's a really important topic because we're getting a lot of questions on it. And a lot of associations don't know what fees they can charge and what fees are dictated by state law and what fees have to be in your CCNRs, et cetera. So we're going to give you a quick update on that. Um, and as always, there's going to be a free question and answer at the end of the class. So I encourage you to submit your questions via the chat box on Zoom and by the comment section on Facebook Live. Um, and we'll be sure to answer every question here today before we sign off so everybody feels that their questions were answered. The only caveat we have on that is that we ask you to please limit your questions to one question per person. And please try to be as specific as possible since it's really hard for me to follow up and ask a follow-up question once that question has been submitted. So let's start out first with um, a little quick update on what's going on in the Arizona legislature. As you probably remember, 2022 was a big year in Arizona for legislation, and we anticipate that 2023 is also going to be a big year for HOA and condo bills. We've talked previously a lot about what um, the five bills that were passed by the Arizona legislature, and we have a great little handout that I we're going to be sharing with you on Zoom. And if you would like to receive the handout on Facebook Live, just make sure you email us at info at mulcahylawfirm.com. So every year we do a summary of what happened in the legislature that year. Probably the biggest bills that I would say that I just want to mention about last year's legislature would be in plant communities. Associations cannot prohibit artificial grass in areas where an owner already has turf on their property. Um, there also was a bill allowing peaceful assembly. So if owners want to peacefully assemble on the association's common areas, the associations cannot prohibit that. It also talked about political signs for association issues where there's going to be a membership vote on an issue. So owners can put up political signs regarding association issues where there's going to be a vote of the association. Um, and they can do that from you know, the time that the ballot goes out until three days after the association issue election or referendum or vote. There was an expansion of first responder flags as flags that can be flown in an association and associations cannot prohibit first responder flags. Um, and then there was a, a very large bill that talked about additional restrictions that cities, towns, and municipalities can place on short-term rentals. And we're gonna be talking about that bill um, more later in the presentation. Just a recap of what happened in 2022, five new laws were passed pertaining to associations. 
Okay, now let's switch to 2023. Our legislature has been in session now for about a week and a half, two weeks, and there have been a number of bills that have been introduced so far. One thing we want to do is we just want to kind of have a little fun poll right now to determine what do you think the legislature should do this year? What type of bill should be passed? So if you wouldn't mind responding to our poll um, on Zoom, and then if you're joining us on Facebook Live, just put something in the comment section. So I'd like the Arizona legislature to pass new laws in 2023 regarding the following and give you five choices. We want more short-term rental regulations. We want to be, make it easier to amend the CCNRs. We want to undo the open meeting law. We don't want any more laws regarding HOAs and condos or Arizona HOAs and condos need more regulations and laws to protect owners. Um, so if you wouldn't mind sharing those results um, with us, then it looks like we already have the answers back. So great. 33% of you want to make it easier for HOAs and condos to prohibit or regulate short-term rentals. And that's interesting. I think that's pretty telling. It's a problem right now in Arizona, and we're going to be talking about that extensively today. 52% of you, even higher percentage, want to make it easier for HOAs and condominiums to amend their documents. None of you want to do the open meeting law, um, which is great. I, I've had this poll now in a couple of different classes that I've taught, and it's very low number of people um, want to undo it. And I think that's representative of the fact that people think it's a good law. 4% of you say no more laws regarding HOAs and condos and regulation of them. And 11% say we do need more regulation of HOAs and condos. So this is a good little snippet of information for our industry in terms of what the pulse is on new legislation in Arizona. Okay, the legislative session started on January 9th, 2023. What are we anticipating this year? And we've already seen now a number of bills that have been introduced. Um, we're going to see continued regulation of HRAs and condos. We're going to see possible clarification regarding short-term rental laws. We're going to see green energy conservation bills and laws requiring that HOAs and condominiums be more transparent. That's just my personal feeling, just analyzing prior legislative sessions and having a pulse on what's going on right now in our industry. That's what I think is going to happen. Okay, already there have been a number of bills introduced into the House and the Senate on a very wide range of topics. A few that caught my eye were continued regulation of drag shows, political signs and tourism zones, picketing in front of someone's home, and lowering the corporate tax for uh, corporations in Arizona. Um, however, we've had a number of bills that have been introduced regarding HOAs, and I think we have about seven currently, maybe a few more that pertain to associations. So I just want to give you a quick snippet of what these bills are and to let you know that we're going to be following these bills and any new ones that are introduced throughout this legislative session. And we post on our website every week an updated summary of the bills that have been introduced pertaining to HRAs and condos, where they are in the process, and um, how likely they're going to be to pass this year. Um, so the first bill that we've seen is House Bill 2047. Um, this bill would allow a city or town with a population of less than 17,000 people to limit the number of vacation rentals and short-term rentals based upon a percentage of total residentially zoned buildings or structures in that city or town. Um, it also allows cities and towns to regulate vacation rentals or short-term rentals in the same manner as transient lodging activities, so like hotels. So 
You know, one of the great things about being around for a while is what well, kind of know the history of a lot of these bills. And I 100% believe that this bill that would allow a city or town with a population of 17,000 or less to limit vacation rentals and short-term rentals, I think that this is directly related to the problems that were raised in Sedona um, about the inability for people who work in the city and people who want to live in the city full-time do that because there's been such a high number of short-term rentals. So of course, when I saw this bill, I went directly and looked up how many people, you know, what the population is in Sedona. Um, and it's 17,000, it's under 17,000. So this bill, you know, obviously would have an impact on Sedona. There are some other smaller towns like Paradise Valley, the town of Paradise Valley, where this would have a positive impact as well. So basically what this would do is say that the city can now regulate you know, to limit the number of vacation rentals and short-term rentals based upon the number of how many residentially zoned units are. So, of course, these cities will be very happy to hear about that in any city that has under 17,000 people in Arizona. Next bill is a flag ban. This bill would make it so that an association cannot ban any flag unless the flag is obscene, defamatory, or likely to incite violence. Um, this bill applies to planned communities and condominiums as well. I think kind of the problem with this bill is how do you define obscene and how you define a flag that incites violence? I think it's we need more objective criteria. So I think that bill should be fine-tuned further. The next bill talks about vacation rentals and short-term rentals. So again, kind of our predictions are kind of coming true here. This bill is kind of interesting. It would send a, a referendum to this, the residents of the state of Arizona to be voted on in the next election. And the referendum would be to repeal limits on short-term rental vacation rentals. Since this is a bill that is going to lead to a vote of the public, it's different from our usual uh, legislation, but it's notable. And essentially, I think what they're trying to do is put this into the hands of the voters. Like, how do you feel about short-term rentals? And like anything, how the referendum is worded is going to be really important because usually the linguistics on that kind of does affect the outcome. So it'll be really interesting to see if this bill moves forward and then ultimately what the language the voters will be voting on in the state of Arizona if this does pass. The next one is HCR 2019. Uh, this bill would also ask for a referendum. And just so you know, I've been monitoring legislation for over 25 years in Arizona. I have never seen referendums on issues that pertain directly pertain to associations. So both of these, the one about short-term rentals, a second one, this bill would send to a referendum to be voted on the next election to allow anyone to request a jury hearing in almost any administrative hearing. This would change the Arizona Department of Real Estate process. If the owner could request a jury trial, it will make it more expensive, I'm sure, and it will also make these cases a lot longer. Um, but again, this is just a referendum. They're asking for a referendum on it. So it's um, something that the if this bill moves forward and is passed, the voters in the state of Arizona will make a decision on whether administrative hearings will give any party the right to request a jury. Okay, next bill is House Bill 2251. It talks about condominiums and insurance requirements. It's pretty lengthy, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but we're keeping an eye on it. This would increase the responsibilities of the association to carry additional insurance. Next, another bill is House Bill 2298. 
This talks about public roadways, and this is kind of like a fix, so to speak, of the bill that was passed, gosh, I think it was about 2000, 1999 or 2000, maybe a little bit later than that, actually. Now that I think about it, I think it might have been like 2010 or 2012. But anyways, regardless, so this is going to be a fix to this parking bill. So a big issue in our industry is can you park, can residents and their guests park on streets that are dedicated to the city and have the association still be able to regulate them? And so how that works is, you know, if you're a planned community, you're a condo where the streets are owned by the association, um, this bill isn't applying to you. This only applies to associations that are planned communities that have streets that have been dedicated to a public entity, like a city, town, or municipality. And basically what this bill had said was that any CCNRs that are recorded after the effective date of this bill, the association wouldn't be able to regulate on-street parking for associations that had streets that were dedicated to the public. So it was kind of confusing how that prior law was written. We weren't sure if we amended the CCNRs, if then we wouldn't be able to regulate on-street parking on the street, or if it was just for new CCNRs that were being recorded after that date. So now what the legislature is doing is they're you know making this a little clearer, and they're saying that any planned community you know that has streets that are dedicated to a governmental agency, and we regulate a roadway for the for which those, those streets operate, they, they have to do one of the following things. So no later than June 30th, 2025, the planning community has to have a vote of the membership on the question of whether to continue to regulate the public roadways. And they have to have a quorum and a majority of the number of votes to continue regulating on public roadways, then they retain their right to regulate those public roadways. If the vote fails um, or the association doesn't hold a vote on this by June 30th, 2025, well, then the planned community no longer has the authority to regulate these public roadways in their planned community. Um, so really interesting way to kind of push this through because I think anyone who's in the industry knows it would be very hard to get a quorum for a vote on something like this. And so any vote that will happen will likely fail. Just in my, you know, 25 years of experience, that's what I'm thinking when I'm reading this bill. So just interesting. Again, these are all just introduced bills right now, and we'll have to watch to see what happens on them. And then the last bill that we're going to talk about that's been introduced in the legislature is House Bill 2301. And this regards, this is regarding political activity in planned communities and condominiums. And this bill would prevent an association from restricting an owner from conducting door-to-door -door political activity, including solicitations of support or opposition regarding candidates or ballot issues, and cannot prohibit a unit owner from circulating political petitions, including candidate nomination petitions or petitions in support or opposition of an initiative, referendum, or recall, or any other political issue. So... When you just take a quick 30,000 feet look at these bills, we're seeing more flag bills, right? We're seeing two short-term rental bills. We're seeing the right of owners to get a jury trial in an administrative law hearing with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. We're seeing requirements to have increased insurance. We're seeing, you know, a clarification on this parking on the streets and cities, you know, in, in, in associations where 
the streets are owned by cities, towns, and municipalities, and we're giving the right to, you know, owners to circulate political um, petitions. So what's kind of the word for this year's legislature? At least trying to do that for the year. What's the word for the year's legislature? I think it's going to be, you know, it's probably two, more regulation, more regulation of associations. What we, you know, making it easier for associations to, easier for association owners to have more freedoms, free property, you know, and then giving some of these tough issues to referendum vote to the people of the state of Arizona to decide how to handle these things. Okay, let's go into our topics for today. We have two really great topics. The hottest topic right now in Arizona, without a doubt, is short-term rentals. Arizona, as we all know, is a tourism hotbed. We've got the 2023 Super Bowl coming up here in a couple of weeks. Waste management opens same weekend. Cactus League spring training for Major League Baseball. And just generally, a lot of people wanting to get out of the cold in other parts of the country. And so, you know, something that we're closely watching, of course, is how short-term rentals are being handled in associations. You know, what are things that associations can do to minimize issues that might be coming to the association's board because of short-term rentals? Um, And so I'd like to also just kind of start out with another poll um, and ask you, does your association, your HRE or condo, are you currently having problems with rental properties? In your neighborhood, um, and so really important question. So if you wouldn't mind answering that poll for me, yes, no, or maybe you don't have knowledge. Um, either way, okay. We have our results back. So forty-seven percent of you are having issues with short-term rentals right now in your neighborhood. Forty-two percent are saying no, and eleven percent say I don't know. You know, so we have a great you know number of people on this call today that are having issues with short-term rentals. And this is a hot topic. Like I said, if you aren't having them currently, this is something that you definitely have to have on your radar for going forward. So just as a kind of a a caveat to start out our presentation today, many cities are starting to address the short-term rental issue by creating ordinances. And we're likely going to see more of this in the coming months and years. And so you you definitely want to check in with your city, towns, and municipalities We're going to be sharing with you the information that we've compiled about all the different cities and what their, you know, different regulations are. And we're going to be doing that um, at some point during this presentation here. Mind you that the new law that allows cities to implement these type of short-term rental restrictions just went into effect September 24th, 2022. So a lot of these cities have just voted on this in December, January Um, what these restrictions and regulations are for each of the respective cities. So, you know, we're giving you kind of our work in progress um, information. And so we'll continue to update it. And ultimately, we're going to be putting together a cheat sheet on it. Okay, what are associations' rights when there is a short-term rental or any rental in an association? So remember that the CCNRs are a contract between an association and the owner. So when you buy a lot, or unit in an association, as an owner, you agree to be bound by the restrictions that are in the CCNRs. Some of you have restrictions in your CCNRs that talk about rental restrictions. Some of you don't. There was a law passed several years ago where it said that owners have the right to rent their property in a planned community or condominium 
unless rentals are prohibited or restricted in their CCNRs. And so, you know, as a starting point for associations, if you're dealing with short-term rental issues or just rental issues in general, um, you definitely want to check your CCNRs for your associations, your covenants, conditions, and restrictions. What do they say about rentals? If your CCNRs say nothing about rentals, well, then basically anything goes. Owners can rent short-term rentals. They can rent rental periods for whatever rental period they want in your community. Let's say that you look at your CCNRs and it says that your members, they must rent a minimum 30-day rental or a minimum 60-day rental or a minimum 90-day rental. That is enforceable. It's in your CCNRs and you can enforce that. Maybe your CCNRs have language in there that says that no rentals are allowed. Um, and that is enforceable if it's in your CCNRs as well. Okay, so what can an association require if you do have a tenant, a landlord, owner who's renting to a tenant? So what type of information are we allowed to ask for under Arizona law if you have a landlord who's leasing, landlord owner who's leasing their property? We're able to ask for three things. And then if you're 55 and over community, we can ask for a fourth thing. So under Arizona law, if you're in a condominium or a planned community, the association can ask the landlord owner for the following information regarding their tenant. So we can ask for the name and contact information for any adults that are occupying the unit. That's number one. So name and contact for any adults that are going to be in that unit. We can ask for the time period of the lease, including the beginning and ending dates of the tenancy. And lastly, we can ask for a description and the license plate numbers of the tenant's vehicles. And so those are really kind of not a lot of information for the association, but that's all we can ask for under Arizona law. So name and contact information for adults who are going to be living in the unit, how long the lease is going to be, and the license plate numbers and a description of the tenant's vehicles. If you're a 55 and over age-restricted community, the owner or the owner's agent must provide the association or its manager with a government-issued identification with the photograph of the tenant and confirmation that the tenant meets the association's minimum age restriction. So if you're 55 and over a community, we have to have at least one occupant that is age 55 or over. So we can ask for a government-issued identification showing the age and a photo of the tenant so that we're sure that at least one occupant is age 55 and over. So that only applies to the 55 and over communities. If your association has something in your documents, or maybe it's been standard operating procedure to ask for a copy of the lease, associations cannot make that mandatory for the tenant to provide a copy of the lease to the association. And that's a very common question that I get. So can we have a, can we see a copy of the lease between the, the landlord owner and the tenant? Um, we can't make it mandatory that the tenant provide to us. If the landlord wants to gratuitously provide it to the association, that's fine. But we can't say you have to give us a copy of the lease or, you know, as a board. Um, we can't charge some fees for registering a short-term rental or a longer-term rental. And that fee is we can charge a fee of $25. Um, and that fee can be charged to any new tenant, even if it's just a nightly rental or weekend rental, monthly, yearly rental. But it can only be charged once. And it cannot be charged if the same tenants renew an existing lease. 
sends notification to the landlord owner that you know they're aware that there's been a tenancy or a lease in their property. They owe the association $25. The owner has to pay that within 15 days of that request. There's a $15 late fee. If the owner doesn't pay that $25 within 15 days after the postmarked request. So that request has to be in writing and it has to be mailed to the owner for it to be considered, you know, valid and for us to be able to charge that $15 fee for not providing it in the first place. So some things, like I said, that were prohibited from requiring from the owner, like a rental application, a copy of the lease, a credit report of the tenant, and any really other personal information other than those three categories, four categories of your 55 and over community. Okay, what are some interesting aspects of Arizona law on rental properties? We, and this these were just kind of like add-ons when this new law went into effect in about 2016. Basically, the association can't say to a landlord owner who doesn't live there on the property that you can't serve on the board because you aren't an occupant of the property. Um, we had a couple of associations that had that in there that said, if you want to serve on your board, you have to be a full-time resident in the community. Well, that is no longer allowed. Anybody can serve on the board. Typically, you obviously have to be a record owner. Um, but look at your bylaws and your CCNRs to determine the exact criteria. But residency and living at the association full-time is not something that the association can say you can't be on the board if you don't live here full-time. Um, an owner also can use a crime-free addendum as part of the lease agreement. Of course, the association can't see that. But nothing in this law would prohibit an owner from making the tenant fill out a crime-free lease addendum, which is a really useful tool for landlords to make sure that the tenant that they're selecting um, doesn't have criminal background, and also so that if there's any legal activity going on in the property, they can easily be evicted. Um, we have a great blog on crime-free lease addendums, which we're going to be sharing with you here shortly, that sparks an interest and you want to find out more about how those work. Some other things that are interesting would be an association may lawfully enforce a provision in the community documents that restricts the residency of any tenants or persons who are required to be registered pursuant to um, sex offender laws and are level two or three sex offenders. Now, this is just kind of odd that they threw this in this bill or in this law that's currently the law because most associations don't have a prohibition in their CCNRs against level two and three sex offenders. But this law at that time apparently seems to be giving the green light for associations to pass that and put that in their CCNRs. Um, and it says that you can lawfully enforce it for any the residency of any persons if you want to prohibit level two or three sex offenders. Now, I haven't seen, you know, a number of associations do this and, you know, the four or five years or six years that this has been on the books in Arizona as a law. Um, and I really do question whether or not this would withstand a legal challenge. You know, I think this is the type of case that could potentially go all the way to the Supreme Court because we would be taking away someone's rights to live in an association based upon the fact that they're level two or three sex offender. One last thing that is kind of a really good part of this law, just doing an overview of the rental laws, is that if you have an owner of a rental property, so a landlord owner, and they don't abate criminal activity on their property, they can be held 
liable and criminal charges can be pressed against them. Um, and I have seen that occur since this went into effect. Um, we had an association where we had a landlord owner who knew that there was significant drug activity going on in a house that they were renting. Um, and the SWAT team had been there. They'd been a drive-by shooting. It was really a train wreck. And the inner landlord of the property was prosecuted by the county and ultimately was convicted. You know, that's kind of something that doesn't happen very often, but it's good to keep in your back pocket. If you are one of those associations that has a tenant that is engaging in criminal activity, we should be telling the landlord, hey, you are required to abate this. And there are criminal penalties and charges that can be made against you if you don't. Okay, so another thing just I want to close out by saying is what about fines? Can we fine landlord owner for the behavior of the tenant? So this is kind of dicey. So I want to make sure that we really cover it carefully. So we can fine the landlord owner for the bad behavior of a tenant, meaning if they're violating the CCNRs, the bylaws or rules of the association. And we can fine that owner. So the, the owner is responsible, the landlord owner is responsible for the behavior of the tenant while they're on the property. So that's something that's a right that we have. In addition to that, you know, we want to be really careful, though, that if the landlord owner is, you know, somehow violating the short-term rental restrictions, let's say you have a minimum 30-day rental period, you know, we want to be careful that we are fining for that violation and being very careful that that $25 that we charge for each new tenancy um, and the $15, if they don't provide it within 15 days of us postmarking, you know, and mailing a, a request to the owner, that's the only charge that we can charge the owner for not basically registering the or giving us the information that we're required to get from the owner. So we can't levy a big fine against the owner for not giving us those three categories of information. The only charge that we can charge is $25 for each new tenancy and then $15 if they don't provide it to us in a timely manner or they don't provide it to us at all. So there's a distinction on that. Um, so be careful if you're fining an owner for short-term rentals, make sure it's regarding a violation of the CCNRs and the bylaws. And if you're finding them for not giving you information about each new tenancy, which they're required to give the association after the association mails them notice to pay the $25 fee and give us three categories of information, the only fine we can give them is at $15 for that. So that's an important distinction I wanted to mention. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, some other things that we want to remind you of as an association. So what do we do if we've got a landlord that has a bad tenant in the property. And, and I get this call once a week, twice a week, sometimes three times a week. We have a bad tenant or we have a landlord that's just violating the um, minimum rental periods. And how do we best handle that? So in my opinion, if you're in that situation, and as we saw, you know, over 40% of you on this call are in that position right now, you need to just escalate this right to your association's attorney and hit back hard with the owner landlord. And basically the best way to handle it, and we've had 100% success on this, so I'm sharing the secret with you, is that the association provides me with whatever the problem is. 
And, you know, whether it's the tenant having a wild party or they're they have a short-term rental for the weekend and they bring in 50 Harley Davidsons and park them in the front lawn or you know, they're not maintaining their property, whatever the issue is, you know, and if it's a minor issue, obviously it's not going to get escalated to me like the trash cans or something. But if it's a bigger issue, which most of these short-term rentals ultimately typically do snowball and become bigger. What I do is I ask for all the information on the violations. You know, we encourage any neighbors to file police reports if that's warranted to document the issues and provide evidence to the boards that we have concrete evidence that the violations. And basically, I just pick up the phone and contact the landlord owner and I outline it for Here's the situation. Your tenant has been violating the association's CCNRs, bylaws, and rules. And here's what they've been doing. And usually at this point, the landlord owner chimes in and says something like, oh, the association's so picky. They, you know, are unfairly treating my tenant. They're, you know, just this is a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of picky neighbors who don't want the rental property. Um, And typically I'll say to the owner or landlord, you know, are you near your computer? And if they aren't, I'll ask for us to have a phone call where that person can be near their computer so they can see what I'm going to be sending them. And I just basically avalanche them with all of the information that we've been receiving regarding the violations, pictures, complaints, police reports, all the different problems with the property. And it usually gets pretty quiet at that point because the landlord's starting to think, oh, this is a little different than I thought. This tenant is violating the documents and this is you know, somewhat serious. And so I typically will go on and tell the landlord, listen, here's the situation. I have been authorized to pursue you as the owner. You're ultimately responsible for the behavior of the tenant. And we're going to file a lawsuit against you. And, you know, in the lawsuit, we're going to uh, all the fines that have been levied against you for these violations. We're going to ask for a judgment for that. We're going to ask for an order compelling you to get your tenants to comply with the CCNRs. And you're going to have to pay my attorney's fees. And the attorney's fees are going to be, it could be as low as five or $10,000, or they could be as high as 50 or $60,000. And you're going to be responsible for that. And usually at that point, remember that the landlord owner is running this property as a business. And they're just trying to make enough money to, you know, pay their mortgage or deed of trust. And they are not on board for losing money on a rental property. And so at this point, there's a shift in the call. And they typically will say to me, can I hire you to evict them? And I tell them, no, I can't represent you because that would be a conflict of interest. But I can get you in touch with a lawyer that will help you with the eviction process. And I can assure you that either my law firm or the manager or board member will provide you whatever evidence you need so that you're successful in that eviction. And that is a foolproof way to handle really bad landlord owners who, you know, are violating your CCNR restrictions on short-term rentals who have bad tenants, whether it's short-term or long-term, just cracking down on that and not letting the problem continue to spiral out of control. And that it works every time. So I want to share that with you. Um, We also will follow it up with a letter, a written letter. So there's written documentation of our phone call. And if they don't comply, then we file the lawsuit. And ultimately, the landlord owner ends up paying for, you know, the violations and it gets expensive for them. 
Okay, a couple little things I want to mention on rental properties. Remember that under Arizona law, all rental properties um, must be registered with the county. And, um, you know, and this is pursuant to Arizona law. An owner of a residential property located in Arizona is required to file a notification form with the county where the residential property is located. This notification form must contain, you know, this only occurs obviously if there's a, a rental going on in, in the unit or lot. You have to have the property owner's name, address, telephone number, street address of the residential property, and near the property was built. If owners don't comply with this requirement after notification and a 10 day grace period, they're subject to a civil penalty of $1,000 plus $100 per month for every month the owner is not in compliance with this notification requirement. And so rental properties must be registered with the county. In addition to that, you need to check with your city, town, or municipality because many, um, and first, just back up a little bit, why do they need to be registered with the county? Because the county um, has a tax that they charge on any rental, short-term, long-term, and the county is going to track that down. So if you're an association that has a rental property, you can go right to the county assessor's website and check to see if a property is registered as a rental property or not. If you know it's being used as a rental property and they aren't registered and don't just say, right, you just look it up by the address, it'll say right there whether this is owner-occupied or a rental property. If the property isn't listed as a rental property and the neighbor or the association knows that it should be, you can contact the county, make a complaint, and they will investigate it because they don't want to lose that tax money. And so, you know, a couple things to think about as we, you know, navigate short-term rentals, because we've got some big issues coming up here, right? In Arizona, we've got Super Bowl, we've got the Arizona um, Waste Management Open, we've got Cactus League Spring Training, we've got horrible weather in the Midwest, Northeast, and um, Northwest. So we're going to have a lot of visitors this, this year. First things first, check with your city, town, or municipality to see what regulations that they have implemented for short-term rentals right now. And many cities, towns, and municipalities have implemented different restrictions. There was a law that expanded this um, just this past legislative session in 2022. And um, if the city passes an ordinance, they have the right to acquire information from the landlord owner. They have a right to make the landlord owner get a permit, maintain more insurance. Um, there's all kinds of penalties that can be levied. If they don't get the permit, they may have to notify. If it's a first-time rental property, they may have to notify the neighbors that are adjacent to it. So really important that you know know what which city the association is located in check with the um, city, town, or municipality to see what their short-term rental restrictions are because your landlord owner may have some additional requirements that they have to comply with. And if they're not complying with it, you can complain to the city. Also check to see if they are registered with the county. Remember, go to the county assessor's website, check to see if it's listed as a rental property. If you have evidence that it is a rental property, you can call the county and um, snitch on them and then we'll, they will investigate it. You know, a couple things to, to think about would be if you know that you're having rental issues in your community, you may want to send out an email reminding owners that for each change in occupancy or each new rental, the different categories of information that they have to provide to the association. So we talked about that earlier. So like the name of the adults that are going to be residing 
in the um, unit or lot as renters and their contact information, vehicle description, license plate numbers, and so forth. And so make sure that you're notifying your residents, hey, you are required to provide us with this information. And then lastly, remember that if you have problems, find the owner for the behavior of the tenant. Make sure you're documenting the file really well with police reports and information from neighbors who are complaining. Escalate the matter to your attorney. Think about having the attorney contact the landlord owner to get the landlord owner to get into compliance. If they don't, then you may have to pursue a lawsuit to collect the fines and to get the court to order the landlord to comply. And so a couple of things that come up with short-term rentals. Um, if your association doesn't have anything in your CCNRs on short-term rentals and you want to amend the CCNRs, make sure you're reaching out to an attorney who has experience in this area and we can give you some good advice about whether you can do that and what would be the best way to handle that so that um, it, it works for your association so you don't get challenged by the membership in the future. Um, we have a great cheat sheet on amending association documents and implementing rental instructions that we're going to be sharing with you. You can also find that on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. You know, really, we covered a lot on the short-term rentals. Just a closing thought is the best way to get a tenant to comply with, you know, your association's documents is to make it hurt in the landlord owner's pocket. And that is by using fines, having your attorney reach out to them to get compliance. That is the, the road to success and to having, you know, hassle-free tenant relationships in your community. Okay, so we covered a lot on short-term rentals and rentals. Um, we're going to switch gears and talk for the last few minutes about disclosure of transfer fees, which is a significantly less complex subject. So um, first, first things first, we have a great cheat sheet on association disclosure fees and transfer fees that I really would encourage you to take a look at because it's a deep dive on this topic and it gives you this Arizona revised statute numbers and tells you what you can and can't charge if you're an association. So one thing just as a starting point is we see a lot of confusion and I get a lot of questions when I'm teaching these virtual classes and also when I am working with associations directly one-on-one -on -one as their legal counsel you know, what charges can we charge an owner when there is a change in ownership in the property? What can we charge? How can we charge it? What's the legal justification for it for these disclosure fees and transfer fees? Um, and so there is a big difference between disclosure fees and transfer fees. And I want to go over those, you know, distinctions for you right now. So first things first, both the disclosure fee and the transfer fee are set up under Arizona law. And so we want to carefully follow Arizona law and understand it in addition to knowing what your documents, your CCNRs may state on this important topic. So let's talk a little bit about what a disclosure statement is or a disclosure fee and when you can charge that. And this is different than a transfer fee or a capital contribution fee. Okay, so a disclosure fee is set up in both the Condominium Act and the Planned Communities Act. And it's set up to compensate an association for the cost incurred in preparing a disclosure statement for a buyer. So basically, what is a disclosure statement? So a disclosure statement, just a quick summary, would be giving information about the association to a buyer so that they can make a good decision about whether to buy in the community or not. And so Arizona law was amended many years ago to give the association 
to make it a requirement that the association provide a disclosure statement. Um, and this only happens with associations of certain sizes, but most associations fall in this category. So if you're a planned community or condo and you have 50 or more units or lots in your community, the association is required to provide a disclosure statement to any new buyer who's buying a unit or lot in the association. And the disclosure statement is a number of categories of information. So 50 or more lots or units, associations required to provide it. 49 or fewer lots or units, interestingly, the seller that is required to provide this. So the owner seller is required to provide it. And lots of times the owner seller doesn't have this information. So the association ultimately ends up just providing it. Okay, so let's talk about what, what exactly is the disclosure statement. So we have to provide different categories of information. So some examples of the information that we need to provide to the buyer would be this, a copy of the declaration or CCNRs, the bylaws, and the rules of the association, a copy of the current operating budget, most recent financial report, and the most recent reserve study for the association, if any. Um, and if that research study is really long, we can give them a summary of the reserve study. And so basically, we, we dump on the new buyer all this information about you know, important governing documents for the association, financial information about the association, and then the reserve study for the association. In addition to that, we also have to give a dated statement as the association to the buyer, telling them what's the telephone number and the address of the principal contact for the association. This can be the manager, it can be a board member, or any person designated by the board. So we have to give the buyer, okay, here's how you contact the association, and here's the person you contact. We have to tell them how much the assessment is, the common you know, assessment, the regular assessment, or the regular fee that's paid monthly or quarterly, or however your association is set up. We also have to tell them if there's any unpaid assessments that are due, whether it's a special assessment or a regular assessment. Um, that maybe the seller owner hasn't paid because that's going to have to be, you know, figured out at the close of escrow. So we tell them how much is owed and we also tell them how much they will owe if they become an owner. We tell them what portion of the unit or lot is covered by insurance, how much money we actually have in reserves. Um, if the, so the association is providing statement, whether the records of the association reflect any alterations or improvements to the lot that violate the declaration. So there are there any violations on this lot that you're buying that may need to be corrected? If the statement is being provided by a unit or lot owner, a statement as to whether any of the unit or lot owner has any knowledge of any alterations or improvements that violate the declaration. So the owner will have to self-disclose that they know of any violations, like they're providing it to associations that have 49 or fewer units. We also have to provide the case names and case numbers for any litigation that's pending. With respect to the lot or unit filed by the association against the unit or lot owner or filed by the unit or lot owner against the association. So do we have any litigation regarding this particular lot owner or unit owner? We also have to have a statement summarizing any pending lawsuits other than those that are related to collection of delinquent assessments you know, other than selling the unit or lot owner in which the association is a named party, including the amount of any money that's claimed. So where this comes into play is, is the association involved in any litigation that's not related to unpaid assessments 
And it could be like, is the association involved in a construction defect lawsuit? Or is an owner suing the association or the association violating some restrictions or something? Um, and how much is at issue in the lawsuit? Um, and this, all this information is just giving the buyer a 360 view of, okay, what's going on, the internal workings of the association. Lastly, the buyer has to sign something saying, specific language that the statute puts out there saying that I acknowledge that the declaration bylaws and rules constitute a contract between the association and me, the purchaser. By signing the statement, I acknowledge that I read and understand the contract, meaning the CCNRs, and that I also understand that as a matter of Arizona law, if I fail to pay my association assessments, my property can be foreclosed. So, you know, the association provides that statement to the buyer. The title company should get that signed statement back from the buyer. And that's just an acknowledgement that the buyer understands, hey, I'm getting into, you know, a situation where I'm buying into an association and the association, I'm subject to their CCNRs, I have to follow them. And hey, I could lose my property through foreclosure of the assessment lien if I don't pay my assessments. Just some procedural matters on this disclosure statement is that we have 10 days to provide the disclosure statement to the owner upon request. So we have 10 days, typically that's counted as business days, to provide that information to the home buyer. You know, we can deliver this disclosure fee with all this information, either electronically or by paper format. We can give it to either the buyer or to the buyer's agent, which may be the title company. Um, now we get into the tricky thing, which is the fee. How much can we charge for this disclosure statement? Typically, that there's a cap on the resale disclosure fee of an aggregate of $400. Um, so the most that the association can charge is $400. There's kind of a unique little formula that when this law went into effect, you could only increase it up to 20% or whatever the baseline was that you were charged, and then it maxed out at 400. You can't go past 400. If there's a rush fee, we can charge, the association can charge $100 rush fee if you know, we've got to get it to them within 72 hours. We can charge an update fee of $50 if 30 days have passed from the original disclosure statement that was provided to the buyer. Let's say that the close of escrow got delayed and they wanted an updated disclosure. So basically, this disclosure information is a way to notify buyers. This is the 360 view of the association. And this is the most important information that you need to know about the association. We can charge this fee of the maximum of $400 to, you know, typically it's negotiated between the buyer and the seller, but more likely than not, the buyer's paying this $400 fee. And there's a big question in the industry, like, who gets paid this $400 fee for the disclosure for preparing the disclosure statement? A lot of management companies have it negotiated into their contract that they get the disclosure fee from any sale or any you know, time that they're contacted by a buyer. And the association um, doesn't get that money because the management company prepares a statement. Now, it, just, it depends. Every association is different. Some associations get all $400. Some associations let their management company get $400 for this, preparing this information and giving it to a buyer. This is kind of a big chunk of change, though, when you think about it, because in Arizona, between 5 and 10% of all lots or units in your association turn over each year. 
And depending on how large your association is, this could be you know a lot of money that's changing hands in terms of the disclosure fee. And so it's important that, you know, I just mentioned that this is something that you can negotiate with your management company when you're negotiating the contract with them. And so, you know, you don't want to automatically give this up to the management company 100%. It might be something that you can negotiate to get a portion of it or maybe even all of it. Let's see. I think that's pretty much it on the disclosure fees. So again, this is something that's set up under Arizona law. It's provided to the buyer to give more information. There's a cap on how much we can charge of $400. It's negotiated between the association and their management company. If they have one who gets that $400 and really that's it. Okay. So next thing we're going to talk about are transfer fees or capital contribution fees, just for a couple of short minutes. A transfer fee is a fee that's different than a disclosure fee. And this fee is paid to the association for a specific purpose, such as funding the association's reserve or contributing to the association's working capital fund. And if you want to charge this transfer fee, or sometimes it's called a capital contribution fee or reserve fee, you really have to provide you know, there's a law that sets this up and you have to, it has to be in your association's CCNRs for you to charge this. So um, the governing documents have to grant authority to charge this. So what that means is that it, it has to have a specific purpose for the fee and it has to be in the CCNRs that you can charge this anytime there's a sale of the property. Um, the fee has to touch and concern the land and the fee can't go to a third party, such as a management company or a developer unless a third party or developer is authorized in the CCNRs to manage the real property within the association or was part of an approved development plan. So really, the most important thing is if you're going to charge a transfer fee as an association, and there's no cap or maximum on a transfer fee, it just has to be in your CCNRs, and it has to say the specific purpose of the fee, and we have like specific language that our firm uses when we do a transfer fee amendment for a client and it, it makes sure that we address how the fee is going to be used, who it's payable to, the association, it can't be paid to a third party, and that it touches and concerns the land. You know, you have to be really careful. A common problem that we see on transfer fees is that associations are just charging them and they don't have this language in their CCNRs. And if you're challenged by a buyer or a current owner on whether or not you have the legal authority to charge a transfer fee or a capital contribution fee or you know a reserve type fee, you likely will not prevail in court unless this is in the CCNRs and gives you the right to do that. So be real careful on that. If you're an association that wants to charge this and that's listening in on this call today, um, make sure that you reach out to an attorney that specializes in condo and HOA law in Arizona so that you get that language right in terms of what you're going to be voting on to amend the, the CCNRs to authorize the association to charge this transfer fee anytime there's a transfer of the association's property. So there definitely is a difference between disclosure fees and transfer fees. Just be real careful that you don't mix that up. Disclosure fees we provide to the buyer. It's a cost that we charge for providing information to the buyer about the association. It's a cap of $400. Transfer fee is different in that it ha and you don't have to have that disclosure fee in your CCNRs. Just having it in state law is enough that that gives you the authority to charge that fee and to provide that information. Transfer fees different. 
transfer fee has to be in the CCNRs. There's no cap on the amount, but it has to be specific as to what the specific purpose of the fee is. And it has to have language that it touches and concerns land for it to be valid. It has to go to the association and not a third party. So those are tricky questions. And the transfer fee, just in, in closing, is a great way to fund your reserve, especially if you're an association that's listening in today on this call and you don't have enough money to pay for your long-term capital improvements. This is a really great way to fund your reserve. And many associations in Arizona, I would say probably 60 to 70% of associations are using transfer fees to adequately fund their reserves so that they have money coming in each year into the reserves from this stream of income. Okay, so we covered a lot today. Um, We talked about the last year's legislation. We talked about the pending legislation for this year, 2023 legislature. Don't forget to check our website um, because each week the 2023 legislature is in in session. We're going to be giving you updates on what's going on. And now we're going to switch over and talk a little bit about the questions that we have today. Um, So we have a really great turnout today. We have um, 67 people with us here on Zoom, and we have a number of additional people joining us on Facebook Live. So 22 questions as of right now. I'm just going to plug right through them, as I always do. I'm about five minutes over on the presentation, but I think we should be able to get through these questions in the next 30 to 45 minutes. Okay, first question is from a homeowner. Um, The homeowners are aware that friends and family of board and management have been both hired for pay and appointed to unpaid committee positions of leadership to maintain power and control. When we bring it up for discussion, the board president and general manager claim it's a human resources privacy issue that they cannot discuss. The Arizona Department of Real Estate requires homeowners to try to resolve issues on their own before requesting a $500 hearing through their ADRE process. Our community is 55 plus and people are on tight budgets. Is there free assistance available to us? Um, Well, just a couple points. So having friends and family members being hired to do positions at the association, or I guess as employees or independent contractors, that's a no-no. I mean, even if they were doing that, it should have been in the open board meeting minutes that this is happening. And it's a bad idea regardless. But so does the Department of Real Estate offer any sort of financial assistance for people who are on tight budgets? If you want to go to the ADRE process and file a petition against your association regarding these issues, you know, I'm not aware of them waiving the fee, but you could contact them and ask if there's any sort of a special program that they have. I know that um, in Superior Court, there is a way that you can get that filing fee waived, but I'm not aware of anything in the Arizona Department of Real Estate, but you can call them. Um, One way that you could kind of spread around the expense on the hearing, the $500 filing fee cost petition would be to get 20 residents to chip in to pay that filing fee and then it would lower the cost. Um, One of you would have to be the figurehead, you know, filing it in your name, but you could maybe spread the cost by doing it that way. Okay, next question. I am the current president of our board with my term concluding in March of this year. The gadfly in our community was president for many years and was asked to leave some years ago due to an assault of an owner. Can you give me some guidance on how to handle this issue? Should he decide as an owner to again run for the board? What is the correct manner to handle this? I'm not familiar with the prior circumstances, but obviously that's concerning that a board member potentially assaulted an owner. 
So we have a great cheat sheet called um, the Code of Conduct for Board Members that you can find on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. If this particular owner is elected to the board, you should try to have the board sign the Code of Conduct so that everybody agrees to act professionally and respectfully, et cetera. You may want to get your attorney involved if this board member gets elected and have the attorney have a phone conversation with the director to talk about fiduciary responsibilities and reminding the director that the director needs to behave in a professional and business-like manner in all dealings as a board member. Next question is from an owner. We are interested in hosting a short-term rental in our guest house. Sorry, I just lost my little position here with the questions. I'm going to go back to that. Um, let's see. Okay. So, however, this is language in our, this is the language in our CCNR. So I have an owner who wants to short-term rental their guest house. Rental of any guest house is prohibited. The occupancy thereof shall be limited to members of the owner's family, guests, or servants. This shall not be construed as preventing the leasing of a single family dwelling. Our question is, does the ARS provide any exception for short-term rentals as opposed to rental, which would supersede the CCNR above. So short answer would be your CCNR's control here. Um, and you would not be able to rent out your guest house as a short-term rental. In your association, according to the language that you provided to me, you can only rent out the entire you know, single family dwelling. And it specifically says you cannot rent out the guest house. So Arizona law doesn't you know, have any exception on this, you cannot rent your guest house as a short-term rental. Okay, next question. The city of Peoria has adopted new rental property requirements. Being in Peoria, can our HOA adopt these same requirements and expect rental property owners to abide by them or be fined according to our policies? Um, that's a really good question. You know, with the new legislation, I always love to hear the questions I learned too from teaching these classes. Um, you know, my feeling is that the city of Peoria, they they will enforce that ordinance. If the board wants to, you know, have similar requirements, you're going to need to amend your CCNRs to include those requirements. It's probably not necessary because the city of Peoria is going to be doing all the work for you. And if you find out that the owner landlord is not complying with the city's ordinances and requirements on short-term rentals, you certainly can go to the city and make a complaint um, with code enforcement or with whatever department is going to be enforcing those new ordinances. Next question, what if the president doesn't follow through on enforcement for short-term rentals, meaning like levying fines, which was approved by the association's general counsel or attorney? I believe the president has a personal interest in this issue. So what to do if we have a board that's not following through on short-term rental issues? Well, I think as a homeowner, you should express concern by writing a letter to the board, asking them to enforce it. You know, I don't know what was approved by your attorney, but as a homeowner, you have the right to, and I don't know if these restrictions are in the CCNRs, but I would start out by writing a letter, attend a board meeting, talk about it with the full board. If they continue they to not enforce whatever section, you know, in the short-term rental provisions that they're not that they're not enforcing, you can go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate, file a petition, you can file a lawsuit, you can get an attorney to write a letter to the board. These are all remedies that you have to make 
the association enforce the short-term rental um, requirements. Question number six, our association documents require painting of homes every 10 years. The colors were decided 20 years ago. If the HOA decided to upgrade colors to new colors, how would the association deal with those who just recently painted their homes to meet the current color? So anytime you're doing like a paint conversion in an association, you have to recognize that there is going to be a time period where there's going to be the old paint colors and the new paint colors, and there's going to have to be a transition. Um, so if somebody has recently painted their home, one of the old colors, of course, you cannot make them repaint it, a new color, until their home needs to be repainted, you know, due to wear and tear in the future. Okay, next question, number seven, um, the structure of our HOA is, there's a board. There's a general manager and an HR director who works in the administrative area with the general manager. Question, are there any laws or legality around nepotism, specifically persons serving on a board related to each other or working for the HOA, or is it just an ethical issue? Where would these things be stated in governing documents, if at all? Okay, so we picked two questions on this today, which is kind of crazy. It's a not a question that we, I mean, I hear it, but it's usually just a couple times a year. I hear it the same day in one of these classes. It's unusual. Basically, here's my opinion on this. If you're serving on your board, do not hire your family, your relatives, your friends to be paid employees of the association. That is a horrible idea for many reasons. Number one, it could be seen as a conflict of interest, not as it's defined under the Condominium Act and Planning Communities Act, like just in general, that you might be um, engaging in some form of self-dealing, which you know would be a breach of your fiduciary responsibility to the community. Um, so bad idea all around to do this. You know, are there any laws or legality around nepotism? So having a person serving on the board and working for the HOA, or is it just an ethical issue? So it's kind of unusual. The Condominium and the Planning Communities Act talk about this exact circumstance where you have somebody serving on the board. They It doesn't say they can't do this. It says that if they are going to hire, you know, like a relative to work for the association, that they have to disclose in an open board meeting that they're doing this and they can still vote on it. Now, obviously, that's way too lenient, in my opinion. And I think this should be avoided at all costs. So look in the governing documents. Does it say anything on this? I doubt it will. Um, look at the Condominium Act and the Planning Communities Act where it talks about this conflict of interest thing and disclosing before um, you would hire a relative to work for the association while you're serving on the board. You know, there's a section in that section right there. Personally, I, you know, my opinion as a legal counsel for the association is this should be at all costs and it's a potential breach of fiduciary duty under the Arizona Nonprofit Corporation Act. Okay, question number eight. We have a number of units owned by a trust, the John and Jane Doe Revocable or Irrevocable Trust. The trustees include the residents' children. Are these children's trustees considered members of the association? Can these children's trustees vote and run for the board of directors as members? So what I would do if I were looking at this question is I would look at what the requirements are to run for the board um, and to be a board member. And I would, you know, typically it'll say you have to be a record owner. 
Um, and it may mention something about or an officer or director of a corporation or a member of an LLC. Sometimes it will also expand it to trustee in a trust. More likely than not, depending on how you know the trust is set up, these children that they are trustees will be able to run for the board. So next question. Um, this looks like a long one, so I'm going to try to summarize it. Okay. We have proposed new CCNRs that read, so these are proposed, so I guess they haven't been filed. Upon the transfer of title to a lot or at the close of escrow, whichever occurs first, a transfer fee in an amount set by resolution of the board may be due and owing to the association. Such transfer fee will contribute to the association's working capital funds, the maintenance, repair, reconstructions, and replacement of improvements. Assessment will become part of the assessment lien on the lot and collectible in the same manner as assessments. Okay, so the question is, will the board resolution that set the transfer fee need to be recorded? Do you think that this is a good idea to have the transfer fee undefined in the CCNRs? So, well, number one, the board resolution isn't enough to implement this transfer fee. It has to be an actual amendment to your CCNRs where owners vote on it. Looking at the language of your proposed transfer fee, I don't have a problem with the language being undefined, meaning how much the transfer fee will be. I don't have a problem with board determining that, but the rest of the language of that, I guess, the board resolution, um, it needs to be updated to make sure it complies with the transfer fee statute. And I don't think it does based upon the short area that you gave me. Um, so first, a board resolution isn't enough. A board resolution recorded isn't enough. You have to amend the CCNRs. And I am okay with it being undefined, although you know, you're know you going to need the members to vote to approve this. And that may scare members if it's undefined, meaning that the board can make it whatever they want and it could get really high. So if you want to get the votes of the membership, you may want to say, pick a number and then say anything over that number is going to require 51% approval of membership or something like that. Okay, next question. To date, the HOA has never charged or used the transfer fee. Our 2004 transfer fee section does not state what the transfer fees are collected for and how the funds will be used. The HOA combines all asset. The working capital reserve fund is not held in a single fund. I want to know if our transfer fee is collectible and enforceable. It depends. I'm going to really, I need to look at the, before I could answer on this, I really would need to look at the CCNRs. At first glance, I'd say probably not, but it's it's possible. I mean, I have to look at the section. Just because you haven't enforced it or used it doesn't mean you can't do it going forward, but I need to look at the language. Probably will need to amend that section to comply with the law. Okay, next question, number 11. Is there a legal form or waiver that community volunteers can sign to protect the HOA from damage suits or possible injury? From time to time, our HOA organizes a community workday. Okay, so this is, I get this question actually frequently when we're in um, high traffic times in the association, right? Where we have a lot of boots on the ground, so to speak, and uh, board members are looking for volunteers to paint the curbs red and to you know do different things. So is there a waiver that we can have volunteers sign that's going to be, you know, protects the association from damage suits or possible injury? Short answer, yes, we have a waiver that we give to our clients. But the longer answer is the waiver may not adequately protect you in the event that somebody gets injured when they're volunteering, you know, 
to do whatever, paint the curbs or change light bulbs or whatever. So yes, it's, you know, something that you can do. It's a deterrent for being sued. Um, in conjunction with that, you know, don't have these volunteers jackhammering the pool or climbing up on the roof or doing anything that's dangerous. Frankly, we really shy away from advising boards to have this whole volunteer system unless it's something really basic and that they're not going to get hurt doing like picking up trash or, you know, something along those lines. Um, but recognize that the waiver isn't going to fully legally protect your association. You know, the the person gets injured and they go after and sue the association. It's it's honestly not going to do much to protect the association that they waive their rights to sue you. It may make them think twice before suing you. And they may not do it, but if they actually do file the lawsuit, that waiver isn't going to, you know, provide us any sort of get out of paying something you know, waiver. Okay, next question is from one of my most favorite people in in the world, a family member who serves on a board in in Arizona. So great to see you here today. Hope to see you again soon. Um, sorry, our Packers lost. Can HOAs fine owners who illegally park cars and trucks on their front lawns when this is not allowed by the CCNRs? Do they have to send notice first? Can we find the second issue? CCNRs allow for fines. Okay, so we have a great cheat sheet that we're going to be sharing with you on Zoom. You can also find it on our website called Cheat Sheet for Enforcement of Governing Documents. So Short answer, if owners are illegally parking their cars or trucks on their front lawns and that's a violation of your CCNRs, you bet. You can find them for that violation. I'd start out with a courtesy reminder letter. I would escalate it to a fine letter. Remember, if you're fining the owner and your management companies can have the letters already you know, teed up so that they comply with the law. But just as a refresher, you have to set up the fine right. So you have to give them notice of the violation, an opportunity to be heard. So they have to have an, after they get the violation, there has to be a time period where they can write back to the board with their position on this or email back the board or the management company with what their position is on that. And then the third step is to actually levy the fine. So it's, you have to set it up right. So send a violation letter, wait the time period for them to respond. And that's all set up in the letter and then send a second letter levying the fine. If they continue, like let's say that they you levy the fine and then they just continue doing this, right? So when you set up that first letter, set it up saying that, okay, if you, you know, we're fining you for doing this on X date, it'd be great if you had pictures and good documentation. And then in that letter, you could also say, and we will fine you for each future violation of this section by parking on your thing X amount. And then they have the opportunity to be heard on the initial violation and any future violations. And then, you know, you send the violation, the, the second letter saying, okay, you're fined for that one time or whatever that you um, parked your truck on the front lawn. And then for each violation that they do that going forward, you just skip right to that last letter saying, you're fined, you're fined, you're fined, you're fined. So if you set up that first letter right and let them know, hey, you know, we're, notifying you regarding you doing this. And anytime you do it in the future, there's going to be an X amount of dollar fine, given the notice of opportunity to be heard, then you're just setting yourself up so you don't have to start over each time you have this same violation by the same owner. So short answer is yes, you do have to send notice before you fine. You have to give an opportunity to be heard. And if you set it up right, you can just skip right to that second letter and fine them for each time going forward. 
Okay, now we're up to 27 questions. We're on question number 13. We have a resident that has their casita and home on VRBO and Airbnb. Short-term rentals are against the CCNRs. He has received notice and is now being signed. However, refuses to pull the listing. Does our HOA have any legal actions we can take against the homeowner? Uh, absolutely. I would send the RBO and Airbnb a letter immediately telling them that the online posting that they have on their company's website is contrary to Arizona law and that they may be named as a defendant in a lawsuit. Um, that would be one way to handle it. I would also have your legal counsel reach out to this particular author and go through that whole process that we talked about today, showing them the violation, telling them we're going to file a lawsuit to collect on the fines and get them to stop doing this and that they're going to have to pay all of my legal fees for doing that. I would two-prong approach it that way. Um, I would go to VRBO directly and Airbnb, written letters like that before. So contact our firm, we can help you with that. And also um, have your attorney send a, you know, respond to them by calling the owner and, and letting them know what's going to happen if they don't stop. Okay, next question, number 14. Our CCNRs state no businesses are allowed. Are short-term rentals legal businesses? So great question. Goes against like every grain of, you know, like what we would think would be right. So of course, short-term rentals are businesses, but there's an exception under Arizona law that allows owners to rent their properties out unless the CCNRs prohibit or restrict or limit rentals. So yes, it is a business, but we can't use that no business enforcement rule because of that Arizona law. Okay, the $25 tenant fee, is that pursuant to statute or does it have to be in our CCNRs, bylaws, or rules and regs? Um, that is pursuant to Arizona law. So we can charge that $25 each time there's a change in tenancy um, under Arizona law. And that applies to both condominiums and planned communities. Okay, question number 16. Regarding the fee to let's see, regarding the fee to the association for rental, does the fee apply to short-term tenants that rent more than once? So you can charge a $25 fee for each time for the same tenant. So the only time, so how it works under the statute is. Okay, so let's say that you have a landlord and there's a tenant, right, that comes in. You can charge the $25 fee for the term of their lease. If they renew their lease, and that would have to be just like an extension, right? If they renew that lease, we can't charge them for, you know, extending that lease, right? We can't charge them the $25. But let's say this tenant comes back maybe every March, you know, you can charge a new $25 fee if they're coming back every March, or maybe it's a short-term rental one where, you know, they're coming back frequently throughout the year. Um, if it's not being extended, you can charge a new $25 fee. Okay. Uh, next question, number 17. Has there been any activity for anyone challenging Callaway versus Calabria that might open up our ability to revise our CCNRs, pivot or limit short-term rentals at our 67% voting threshold? that is in our CCNRs instead of the 100% that Callaway versus Calabria established. Okay, first things first, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting a good read on the Callaway case. So that case doesn't necessarily say that you can't amend your CCNRs um, without 100% approval. 
Um, you have to look at what your language in your CCNR says. You have to look at the section that you're amending. You have to look at how foreseeable it is that that section would be amended. There should be analysis of that. It shouldn't just be black or white that, okay, you can't do anything now because of Callaway. That is not how that case reads. So I just want to make the comment to you here. So you should talk with an attorney that's familiar with Callaway versus Calabria case and give you advice about how you potentially can still do an amendment and not violate you know, the provisions of that case. Okay, second thing, um, have there been any challenges to Callaway? So it takes a while for these cases to work through the system, right? Sometimes up to three years. I'm aware of one case that's already in the system that may further clarify Callaway. Um, there was on this short-term rental issue, there's another case that actually was decided right before Christmas. And it was interesting. It was an amendment case and the court declined to analyze the short-term rental issue um, because the case was getting bounced on another issue. So um, it's coming. It probably will be in 2023. If I had to forecast something, it will happen some sort of a clarification on that column case. Okay, next question, number 18. When is a guest considered to be a full-time renter? We have three vehicle limit per condo when guests are staying in a condo much of the time the three vehicle limit may be violated. Is there anything we can do to restrict full-time guests? How would that be enforced? Um, I think on this one, you're going to want to reach out to your attorney and talk through, you know, is this like a seasonal guest? Is this like a student that's coming home from college? We'll really want to look at the facts. If the guest is actually really like living there full-time, like let's say a college student graduates from college, comes back and lives at home with mom and dad. They're there, you know, every night of the week. They're not a guest anymore. They're a resident and they shouldn't be, you know, parking in the guest parking or treated as a guest. So we want to look at the facts on that really carefully. Okay, next question, number 19. Can the board enforce removal of plants near a condo and bill the condo owner? Okay, so it sounds like they're, I don't know if the plants are on common areas or if they're on in the, you know, limited common elements that the owner may be responsible for exclusively using. So I would need a little bit better information. But if there are plants that have been installed on the common areas, and sometimes we see owners doing that, I think you want to talk with the owner first just to let them know that, hey, these, why they might be removed. So you don't go into like World War III on this issue and kind of try to find some common ground. I don't know if the plants are not being maintained. That's why they need to be removed or maybe they look bad or maybe they shouldn't. The owner went ahead and put them on the common areas without getting approval and it's not consistent with, you know, the rest of the landscaping. I need more facts, but can the board typically remove something from their common areas? Yes, that's typically our area of responsibility. Um, but you want to be mindful that what's the dynamics are here, how that got there, and is this person going to be really upset? Try to talk it through with them so that we make a good choice. Billing the condo owner to do that, I think that might be a little bit over the top. And you know, unless you have the justification for that in the CCNRs, you probably won't be able to collect that. One thing I want to mention, many, many, many years ago, I had an association where an owner put some chairs on the common areas and the association wanted these chairs removed. And the association removed the chairs and then the police got involved and there was a big to-do over it saying that the association had stolen the property 
Um, so we don't want that to ever happen. So just making that as a little side note here, you know, if you're going to remove an owner's property and you know the owner's property belongs to them, you want to make sure you give it back to them and not donate it to charity or whatever. I don't know if that would even come into play here with the plants, but um, okay. So next question, number 20 from one of my favorite managers. Good to see you here today. Can amenities be restricted from short-term rental guests? Short answer, probably not, because tenants would have the same right to use amenities as an owner. Um, that's typically something that's outlined in the CCNRs. Okay, question number 21. We recently held an owner meeting to go over upcoming election ballot measures. We unexpectedly had a quorum of the HOA board at the meeting. The HOA board did not run the meeting. Since the meeting was concerning HOA business, the election, and there was a quorum of the board present, are there meeting requirements to be met in this situation? Note that there were no board discussions or decisions at this meeting. Okay, so just to back this up a little bit. So you're, you're having an owner meeting to discuss an upcoming election ballot. So it's probably like on an initiative at the association. And we had a quorum of the board at that meeting, but they weren't running it and there wasn't any decisions being made, it's kind of a dicey, tricky situation because anytime a quorum of the board is present discussing association business, it's considered a board meeting and you need to notice it. So what would we do in the future, you know, so that somebody doesn't get upset about this and challenge us under the open meeting law for violating the open meeting law? You could call it an owner meeting um, and then do like slash board meeting if you know that majority of the board's going to be there. Um, and then just put right in the notice, the board's not running this meeting, but there could be a quorum of the board present. And therefore, we need to notice this as a board meeting. That would be the way to handle it or have less than a quorum attend. But if it's an important issue for the community, you probably do want a quorum to be there listening. Okay, question number 22. Where is the documentation that 5% of the units turn over yearly in Arizona, making transfer fees lucrative? Um, that is just the feedback there is, there is, I don't have, you know, like case study that I've done or anything, but that is the feedback that I hear from management companies. And they're the ones that are, you know, collecting the disclosure fee typically. And many boards will ask the management company, how much income are you getting from the disclosure fee? And, you know, sometimes management companies don't readily provide it. So what I will typically say to the board is go back and look at how many sales have been in your community this year. And when we've gone back and, and done, you know, a check on this, um, we've seen somewhere between five and 10%. There certainly are years when the economy is good or bad or that maybe higher or lower. Um, but I think that's a good range for you to think about if you're trying to plan what sort of revenue you might be getting in from the disclosure fee. Okay, next question. Our management companies have charged transfer fees. We were told to handle the paperwork of the transfer and the property. The management company has been keeping the money. We are not seeing the fees in our accounts. Can you clarify the difference between a transfer fee and a capital contribution fee? Okay, so we talked today about the disclosure fee, right? That's the fee that we, you know, is paid to the association by the buyer or the seller. It's negotiated for us disclosing information about the community. Okay, transfer fee and capital contribution fee are typically exactly the same thing. Okay, that's a fee that is being used for a specific purpose for the association. And that may be, you know, to fund the reserve or to typically it's to fund the reserve, or maybe it could be to 
going to our pool renovation fund or whatever. And so what you need to do is sometimes manager companies, they just add on charges to these buyers and no one's really auditing and looking at what these fees are and who they're going to. So I would recommend that you reach out to the key principals of the management company and ask questions like, okay, are we charging a disclosure fee? Who is that going to? How much are we charging? Then are we charging a transfer fee? How much is it? Who is that going to? What is the justification for that? Is it in our CCNRs, et cetera, to get a clarification as to what fees are being charged? Okay, question number 24. What does a board resolution mean and how does the board use this mechanism? So great question. Uh, Board resolutions are really outdated. I don't like seeing boards using resolutions for a number of reasons. Number one, typically they're not in the minutes. And so the board may pass a resolution on something and when the board changes, we can't find it, right? If it's in the minutes, the minutes are the official record at the association. So if the board is making a decision on something, I would 100% prefer that they make the decision and have it in the minutes. And it doesn't need to be called a resolution. Resolutions were used in the 80s and 90s, but they really... It's outdated and people aren't using them now. Another reason why I don't like resolutions is sometimes board pass resolutions that conflict with the association's CCNRs, and you can't do that. They can't conflict with the CCNRs, they can't conflict with the bylaws or the rules. And so it's just an outdated way of doing things. And um, so what does it mean? It's typically a board decision. How does the board use the mechanism? Sometimes they use it just to codify or to notify the membership that of something, but it's really outdated and, and we don't advise boards ever to use resolutions anymore. Okay, question number 25. If the HOA has never charged a disclosure fee, what is allowed as the initial amount that can be then increased 20% annually up to the $400 max? This is a really good question. So our legislature didn't really think this through, right? In terms of you know, what if we haven't ever charged this? Because what is, you know, 20% of zero? Um, I think that's zero, right? <laughs> so it doesn't make sense. I can tell you what a lot of associations are doing. They're discharging the 400. I'm not saying that's right. I, I'm going to tell you, I haven't seen any challenges on it from a homeowner, seller, or buyer. But most associations, in my experience, are discharging the 400. A lot of them really didn't even do the 20% upstep each year. Like I said, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that the word, the statute wording isn't very good because it, we're charging it. It doesn't really give us an avenue to get there. I suppose what you could do is just set like a, set it at a hundred dollars and then just go up 20% each year. There's no right answer on this. So um, I do think that you can charge the disclosure fee. It's just, there's a question mark as to whether you can just bump it right up to 400. You know, you could be challenged on it. But like I said, in my experience, it's what most associations are doing and they're not being challenged. Okay, next question, number 26. How would the Callaway versus Calabria Ranch case affect an HOA's attempt to amend their CCNRs to add short-term rental restrictions? Boy, that is the question of the hour, right? I've been thinking about that since the Callaway case was decided. Okay. Um, You know, on the Callaway versus Calabria Ranch case, it was a case that was decided in 2022. It 
undoubtedly makes it more difficult for associations to amend their CCNRs because the amendment has to be foreseeable that the owners would, you know, find that this is be something that could be amended in the future. You know, one thing I'm going to say about that case is that it, it had very weird facts. Okay. It had like a very small association, like three or four members. And what happened in that case is that a majority of the three or four members teamed up on the fourth member and passed an amendment to the CCNRs without telling that third or fourth member what that they were amending it. They just went ahead and recorded it after they got the votes. It's a very small association, but the amendment that they passed adversely affected that owner that had no idea about the amendment. And it was really kind of a stinky thing to do, right? And the court didn't like it. And I think that's how we got that bad case law that is having some kind of scary domino ripple effects on our industry. So first things first, you got to talk with your attorney about what do your current documents say about rentals? And then look at Callway and look at your CCNRs again and be like, okay, is this amendment potentially foreseeable? One thing we keep in the back of our mind is that in 2016, the legislature told us, if you want to implement a rental restriction, do it via a CCNR amendment, right? Because they took away all the city, towns, and municipalities' ability to regulate short-term rentals. And so, I mean, this industry is like your head spinning because there's so many different things. So, you know, looking at that law from 2016, where the legislature says, okay, associations, if you want to regulate or you want to prohibit short-term rentals, do an amendment to your CCNRs. Well, that should be kind of foreseeable. That's a law, right? That's telling us to do that. If, if we want to respond to the 2016 law, which took away cities, towns, and municipalities' ability to regulate rentals. So, I mean, the law supports us amending it because the legislature is telling us to do that if that's what we want. Now we got this Calabria case that seems to say, well, is it foreseeable? You know, and, and so there's a push and a pull between these two things. After doing this for 25 years, my feeling is I cannot imagine that if this case, this specific issue goes to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court of Arizona, like how can they justify not allowing an association to try to amend the CCNRs to include a rental provision based upon what the legislature has told us to do? And how can they demand that they make it 100% approval? I just, I think that's a tough sell because the legislature is telling us to do this. But again, you know, there's a case in the pipeline that I've been talking about earlier today that may give us further clarification on this. I hope they do. We are still doing rental restriction amendments. We're looking very carefully at what the CCNR say, what the Calgary Ranch says. Sometimes we're grandfathering, using grandfathering so that now the current owners are suing on it. There's a lot of crafty ways to navigate what the law says about short-term rentals, what Callaway says, and what your CCMR say. So reach out to an attorney that knows what they're doing on an HOA and condo law to talk about this and help you navigate that process. Okay, last question for today um, is, what if the president of the association refuses to call an executive board meeting to handle sensitive issues where the president is the focus of the issue. Hmm. Well, that's a problem. But remember, um, state law and I bet your bylaws give the 
board members a right to call a meeting in addition to the president. So typically what it says is, and I'd have to look at your bylaws, but usually the board president can call a meeting of, of the board or like a majority of the board, other board members can call a meeting of the board. Um, in some cases, it might even be like 25%. I'd have to look specifically at what your documents say. But so if you have a five-member board, sometimes two out of the five can call a board meeting or the president can call a board meeting um, or higher number of board members. So I think if you've got that situation, you need to look at what your bylaws say. I bet it has that provision in there. And if you can get another like-minded board member you know, to meet that percentage requirement that you need to call a board meeting, you, you should go ahead and, and ask the president to call it. Now, what if the president refuses to call it, right? Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not setting up a meeting. Well, then the rest of the board should go and meet without the president, properly notice the meeting and discuss the president's behavior. I would hope that the president would want to be there to, you know, give that person's perspective on what's going on. But if they're refusing to and burying their head in the sand, it doesn't mean that you can't go ahead and properly notice that meeting and have a meeting in executive session to discuss it. Okay, so that's it for today. I'm a little bit over. Sorry about that. But this was a, a lot of questions today. And we had two really meaty good questions. So a few things to think about as we look ahead to 2023. We have a lot of free learning opportunities ahead on our schedule. Make sure that you're checking out our website on mulcahylawfirm.com. We have a seminar tab our upcoming classes tab right on the homepage of our webpage. We list all of our classes um, on that. So we're, throughout 2023, we're going to continue doing our first Friday free call-in. That information is on our website. Um, we also are going to have our virtual um, HOA and condo uh, academy that we're going to be doing in conjunction with all the different cities throughout the Valley um, to provide free education to you. Um, and that's always going to be the third Thursday of the month um, at 11 a.m. So we'll be continuing to do that. And then there'll be some other special classes that we'll do um, throughout the year as well. So just some concluding remarks on today. We had 70 live viewers on Zoom and many others joining us also on Facebook Live. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for caring about your community and wanting to make it better um, and wanting to learn about the law so that you make good decisions um, as you're navigating your time on the board or as you're living in your community or as, as you're helping boards as a manager. We are going to be, our next official virtual seminar is going to be on Friday, February 3rd at 9 a.m. for our firm's February virtual first Friday free call-in where we're going to answer questions for free. Um, and we're also going to be joining you again on Tuesday, February 21st for class number two of our virtual HOA Condo Academy. And the topic for that class is going to be how to run effective board meetings and annual meetings. Um, that's always a, a really good class because we do speak so that you can have an annual meeting and give you the tools so that you can have um, efficient one-hour board meetings and get a lot of things done. Um, so we hope you will join us for our upcoming classes. And thank you again for joining us here today and making our classes that we do virtually a success. Um, we look forward to 2023. We hope your associations are successful in 2023. And we want you to know that we're here to help support you and answer your questions as you navigate your time serving on the board in an association or living in an association or helping manage an association. So. 
Thank you again. And I look forward to seeing you virtually again in February. Take care. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. The intent of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation.